Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our study into the book of Isaiah by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here is this week's message. You have your Bibles, you go ahead and be turning to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Been focusing on a number of weeks, the gospel according to Isaiah 53. Remember that whenever those first disciples and apostles were out preaching and teaching Jesus and sharing the gospel, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets. And therefore, we've been challenged that we would be able to share the gospel of Christ if we didn't have the New Testament. We didn't have the gospels. We didn't have the epistles. All we had was what those first disciples had. That's the Old Testament that we'd be able to share the gospel of Christ. And one of the key passages in the Old Testament about the gospel is Isaiah 53. So we're going through Isaiah 53 verse by verse that we would learn and know what was said in the Old Testament about the gospel, about a Messiah, about one who was the anointed servant who would come and who would suffer, who would die for the sins and transgressions of all mankind that we might be redeemed. So verse by verse in Isaiah 53, we're walking through that. Last week, we saw in verse 9 that it said that his grave would be appointed to wicked men. We talked about the fact that Jesus died on the cross, not hanging by himself, but hanging between two thieves. And that his rightful place, that he would have been buried because he was being crucified with those thieves, would have been right below that cross. They would have dug it and he would have died there with the wicked There, as the Romans would have it, are in the potter's field, if it had been for the Jews. But his assigned place of death would have been in a grave with the wicked. But it says, but in his death with a rich man. And what in the world could that, and how could that possibly happen? We know that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple of Jesus, came along, asked Pilate for his body. Pilate graciously allowed him to have it, and he took it and buried, took that body and buried Jesus in the tomb that he had prepared for himself where no one else had ever lain. We find out that what the Scripture says is true. It also went and said that he died with the wicked even though there was no violence in him. He had done nothing wrong, and no one could accuse him. Even we saw those three unlikely Uh, testimonies of Pilate, Herod, and the thief on the cross who said he's done nothing wrong. And then we talked about the fact it says that in his voice or in his speech, there was nothing that was harmful or there was nothing that would bring shame, but rather there were words of blessing. We talked about the seven sayings on the cross, that none of those were wrathful, none of those were angry, none of those were deceit within his heart, but revealed the purity of his life. Well, that brings us now to verse 10. We're once again looking at 700-year-old evidence that you and I can be confident that the Lord Jesus Christ is this suffering servant, that everything it said in Isaiah 53 about this suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled. And also, it provides evidence for anyone who is here who has never given their heart to Jesus, never asked Christ to come into your life, and you're sitting there and you're wondering and wavering whether or not this is true. Whether or not, if you gave your heart to Christ, is he really the Redeemer? Is he really the Savior? Can he save your soul? I hope you see that these 700-year-old evidence can give you a confidence that he is who he says he is. He is the Lord God, and that you need to put your faith and trust in him. 
one other word about that. I want you to remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you'll do what he says, that you will know that what he speaks is, uh, is of God. Which means this, if you're going to try to figure out salvation, and you're going to figure out Jesus, you're going to know everything before you ever get saved, you'll never get saved. But if you will trust in him and do his will and be obedient to what God says, then within your own heart and your own life, you will know without a shadow of a doubt that what Jesus said is true, that he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, he is Lord, he's Redeemer of life, and that you are secure in him. For see, the Word of God teaches us that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that we are saved. We can know without a shadow of a doubt that where we sit today, that if we were to die, we would have eternal life. I can't tell you what that is worth. (laughs) I mean, to be able to know that no matter what you face in life, no matter what the next phone calls might reveal, no matter what the next doctor visit might tell you, no matter what circumstance in life that you are, that whatever happens to you, that you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are going to heaven, that you're going to have eternal life, that's the most important thing you will ever know. And if you've never done that, you don't have that. You need to do that today. You need to have that today, for it's one of God's greatest gift, that assurance of salvation. Now, what does he say further in Isaiah 53, verse 10, about this anointed servant? Here's what he says. But the Lord, the Lord God, talking primarily there about the Father, the Lord, the Lord God, was pleased to crush him. Now, the hymn there is talking about this anointed servant, this suffering servant, this one Isaiah said who's going to come and who's going to suffer and die for the transgressions and sin of the world so that they might be redeemed. Listen to what it says again now. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, his willingness to suffer, his willingness to be crushed, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, that anointed one, that suffering servant, will see it and be satisfied. Now, you need to leave your Bibles open as we look at these passages today. Well, some of that's a little bit difficult to grasp and understand. That, that very first statement when it says that the Lord God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. What in the world does that mean? Why? Why would God the Father be pleased to crush him and to place upon him that grief. Well, I hope you know that holy God, the Father, is not just excited about being able to hurt or crush anybody. So there's obviously a a greater meaning than that. And and this is the meaning that it says. The the reason that he was pleased to crush it is, first of all, you need to write this down, all right? First of all, is this is the fulfillment of the eternal plan of God. An eternal plan of God that was established to redeem creation. Now, now think with me just a minute, okay? 
So much of us, we don't know what's going to happen next, and things surprise us. And when things happen in our life, we have to come up with plan B. Have you ever had something where you had to come up with plan B? Because it's not what you were expecting, not what you were anticipating. So in our lives, we have to come up with plan B. Let me tell you with God, there's never a plan B. For see, God knows everything from the beginning to the end. He knows everything about creation before he ever created man. He knew what was going to happen in the garden before there was ever Adam and Eve or before there was ever a serpent. He knows everything, and God knew this, that God knew that man, even though he created man and he had that free will and should have responded and been obedient to God, he understood that man was going to be tempted and he was going to falter and fail. But it says in Revelation 13, 8, that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It says that there is a book of life, the Lamb's book of life, that was established before the foundation of the world. That tells you this, that before there was ever sin, there was a Savior. Before there was ever a need for forgiveness, forgiveness was offered. In the mind of God, His plan was the total, absolute redemption of His creation. In other words, whenever it fell and it faltered, God didn't just destroy it and give it up on it, but God had a plan laid forth of how he would redeem it, how he would win it back, how he would get it. And that plan is for all of creation. We find out in Romans chapter 12, it's for all of creation, but particularly it is for man. God had a plan whereby he could redeem man, that which was made, and those of us who are made in his own image. Do you realize how much God loves us? I mean, because he, he created us in his image, he loves us. And when he could have given up on us, when he could have cast us aside, he said, I'm not giving up on them. I have a plan of redemption, and that plan of redemption is for his son to die on a cross, pay the price for sin, suffer and die, that man might be forgiven, that creation might be redeemed. And it pleased the Father. Listen, think think about this. It pleased the Father to carry out his perfect plan, even though it means the crushing of his son. And and if you get the wrong image about that, you don't need to have that image. Well, here's the Father who's being harsh to the son, and the son's having to pay the debt for the people. Why would the father feel that way? Listen, the son was a part of that as well. Look in your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And for the joy before him, this is talking about Jesus, and the joy before him that he might endure the cross. You hear how the son saw the cross? The son saw the cross as a place of joy, not because he is going to enjoy the suffering, but it's a place of joy because it's a part of God's plan of redemption. So the father was pleased to crush him, and the son joyfully accepts that in order to fulfill the plan of God to redeem you and redeem me. Wow. That ought to make you feel good today. Whenever you're kind of in the mully grubs and you're wondering whether or not it is worth it and whether anybody loves you or cares about you, you ought to feel great that God loves you and that God cares about you. And the second thing is this, that you are a reward worth Jesus dying for. 
See, he knew the only hope that you and I had, that we could be redeemed, that we could be saved, that we could be a part of God's family, is that Jesus would die for us, that he would suffer and die. And because the reward is so great, both the Father and the Son said, we will do it. We will do it so that we might redeem them. We might win them back. We might have them. You ought to write in your Bibles this this statement because this is what this passage says. You are worth it. (laughs) You ought to write that down, my friend. That's what that passage says. God Almighty and the Son of God, when looking at the plan of redemption and the hopelessness of our hearts and our lives, looks at us and says, they are worth it. They are worth it. I can't believe at times that I am worth it, but I'm thankful the Father and the Son say that I am worth it. Go back to that passage. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Look what it says. Putting him to grief... If he would render himself a guilt offering. The second thing I want you to see is this. Not only that the Father was willing to crush Jesus and Jesus willing to die because we were worth it. But I I want you to see this. I want you to see the complete adequacy and the completeness of the sacrifice of Jesus. All right? I want you to see how adequate and complete the sacrifice of Jesus is. We already saw in verses 5 and 6 that Jesus was the sin offering. You remember us talking about the sin offering? And we talked about there in verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Remember we talked about there was the sin offering and And there was a sacrifice, and Jesus was that sin offering. That was the atonement for our sin. It means that when Jesus died, that the penalty of our sin, the penalty of our sin was paid for. For see, the penalty of sin is death. And Jesus died on our behalf, and therefore the penalty is paid for, and we have been set free. No longer is the penalty of death over us who believe in the Son of God. Because we can just point to the cross and say, it's been paid. It's been paid. That penalty has been paid. The sin offering has been given. Well, thank God for that. Amen. That puts you in right standing with God. I don't know about you if you know that or not. Puts you in right standing with God. There is no debt that you owe. But wait a minute. Here it tells us he did something else. (coughs) He tells us. That not only was Jesus a sin offering, but he was a guilt offering. You see that? You might think, well, well, isn't that the same thing? No, it's not the same thing. When you get home today, go read in Leviticus chapter 5 and Leviticus 6, also Leviticus 19. In Levitical law, it'll it'll lay lay out the fact that there is not only a sin offering, but there is a guilt offering. A guilt offering. Well, what the sin offering takes care of the penalty of sin. What does the guilt offering take care of? 
Well, it, it kind of goes along with what that says. It, it takes care of the guilt. It takes care of the guilt. Look at it this way. Look back at that verse 10. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Hear that? See that word grief? Putting Jesus to grief. Go back up to verse 4 and see what it said Jesus was going to do for us. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried away. It says it placed, it placed upon him the grief. Whose grief? Our grief. Whose sorrow? Our sorrow. And so Jesus, whenever he dies as a guilt offering, he's not taking care of the penalty of sin. He's taking care of the very consequences of sin. Don't let me lose you. Hold on here. Slap somebody. Wake them up. I'm here to tell you this will bless your heart. This will settle some issues in your life that I will guarantee you some of you deal with every day in your life. For see, there's a difference in having the penalty of sin taken care of and the guilt of sin being taken care of. Well, just know it in your own life. Have you ever really messed up? And whenever you messed up, as you messed up, you you tried to make that right. And in making that right, you tried to pay back whatever, pay back what was lost or give back what was taken, or you've tried to make restitution some way, and you've tried to get that right, but even though, (coughs) I'm sorry, (coughs) even though you did that, there was still this burden of guilt in your life. You ever felt guilt? I mean, even though you did that, you did everything you're supposed to do, there's still this grief because you sinned. There's this guilt and this burden because you sinned. And it's just on your heart and on your life, even though that person says it's okay, even though God says you're forgiven, there's still that burden of sin. That's agony, my friends. I hope you are self-aware enough that whenever that happens in your life, you know what it is whenever you have your conscience that is killing you because you sin and you've got that grief and that guilt. That is a heavy burden to bear. Let me tell you what Jesus came to do. (laughs) Let me tell you what Jesus came to do. Jesus came not only to pay the penalty of your sin, but he also came as the guilt offering. For see, the guilt offering was what was offered by people when they had that grief and that guilt of when they messed up. It was the restitution that they would have to make and the, and the offering that would have to be paid based on their ability to pay in order to take care of the guilt in order to get free from the grief so that they could have peace in their heart and peace in their mind. And it says that, that God crushed Jesus not only to be the penalty of our sin so we have legal standing, but he also crushed Jesus to be the payment of our grief and our guilt offering so that no longer do we have to walk around with the heavy burden on our heart, but we can be set free. And if you don't know that freedom, my friend, it's only because you're letting the old devil lie to you that he's making you think you're supposed to carry the burden even though he's forgiving you the penalty. That's a lie of the enemy. When Jesus came and died, he died not only for the sin, but he died for the guilt 
that you might be set free. And that you might have a freedom to worship and to serve and to honor him. That is the completeness of his sacrifice. Well, I am so glad that God didn't just take care of the penalty of sin and leave me to carry the grief and the guilt of sin. But when Jesus died, he took it all away. So you are free to be what you were supposed to be. Let me, let me tell you how complete that is. It's as though it never happened. That's what it is. It's as though it never happened. Have you ever messed up and you had to make restitution? You had to ask for forgiveness? And, and have you ever felt in your heart, boy, oh God, I wish that had never happened. If I could go back and change that, I would not let that happen. You ever felt that way? That's what Jesus did. When Jesus does his full work in your life, he makes it as though it never happened. That's why when you bring up sin that he's already forgiven, he's wondering what sin you're talking about. He's casting the sea of forgetfulness to remember it no more, and you're still worried about it. Jesus paid the price on the cross so that not only are you set free from the penalty of it, but you're set free from the agony of it. If only you realize what Jesus did for you. And the Father was pleased and the Son was joyfully accepting that he might be crushed in order to set you free not only from the penalty, but the consequences of your sin. Bless God. You ought to be excited about that. I'm telling you what, y'all need some adrenaline or something. You need to be excited about it. I'm telling you, to think about what Jesus did for you, what he did for me. Life wouldn't be fun. Life would not be fun if all I knew is I had right standing, but I carried all the grief and guilt of my sin every day. That would be an agonizing life. But Jesus took it away. Well, because he did. In my book, he's worthy of reward. Amen? <laughs> In my book, he's worthy of all reward. Listen to what it says. In the Father's book, he's worthy of reward too. Look at verse 10. It says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Listen now. If he would render himself a guilt offering. Did he? Did he? For the rest of y'all, did he? Yes, yes, he did. I haven't got a voice, but I've got better than you. Yes, he did. He was willing. Thank God. He was willing. Listen, if he would render himself a guilt offering, listen what it says. He will see his offspring, number one. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. There are four rewards, it says, that this anointed servant that we know as Jesus Christ, four rewards that he is going to get because he was willing to be the guilt offering. Four things the Father says he's going to do. Now, look at the first one there. In verse 10, it says, he will see his offspring. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If you go back, the suffering servant says that he is going to die in the prime of his life. 
He's going to die while yet a young person. We know that the Lord Jesus died at the age of 33, and at 33 years of age, in the prime of his life, he had no offspring. But it says right here that if he was willing to do that, he would see his offspring. Look at the next thing. He will prolong his days. We already saw up there where it says he's going to suffer and he's going to be cut off. He's not just going to suffer. He is going to die. Well, how in the world when somebody dies, is he, are his days going to be prolonged? I mean, whenever you're dead, you're dead. How, how does that happen? Here's the next thing. It says, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. These are dead, lifeless hands. How can the good pleasure of the Lord prosper in dead, lifeless hands? Because this anointed servant is suffering and he's going to die. And then it says he will see it and be satisfied. How can he see it if he's dead? And how can he be satisfied if he's dead? Those should be the questions you ask when you read that based on what it says that the suffering servant, the anointed servant is going to do. And for them, they're not like us. We're so blessed. You are blessed to live on this side of the cross. Amen? You get to see it in full view of what happened. On that side of the cross, they didn't understand what the world was talking about. For see, they didn't know anything about something called the resurrection. They didn't know about the resurrection. Not then. Oh, oh, they, they knew about life after death. They believed there was life after death. They believed that Abraham went to his father, and they were all gathered to their father. They all went to heaven, but not about the resurrection. They did know a little bit about resuscitation because there had been times when the prophets had prayed over dead boys, and they had come back to life. They knew something about resuscitation. What's the difference in resuscitation and resurrection? Whenever somebody's resuscitated, life comes back to them, but they're going to eventually die again. Whenever somebody's resurrected, they will never die again. Jesus was resurrected, for he will never die again. You'll be resurrected, for you will never die again. Big difference in resuscitation and resurrection. They didn't know anything about resurrection. Hadn't heard anything about that. Till right here. Everything about this anointed servant, it says that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and then all these rewards are going to be given to him, and it points to the resurrection. It's pointing to the resurrection. The first thing he says is the reward is he is going to see his offspring. He's going to see his children. Well, the Lord Jesus clears that up for us, amen? Hold your hand here for a minute and turn over the Gospel of John. You want to see how Jesus clears it up for us? In John chapter 1, verse 12, this is what Jesus said, or what was said by John about Jesus. But as many as received him, that's that Jesus, that's that anointed servant we've been talking about. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's what it's talking about. See, when Jesus was willing to suffer and die as the anointed servant, when he's willing to be crushed, then his offspring are going to be the children of God. The children of God. If you want to know a little clarity on that, turn a page over in your Bible, at least my page, to John 3. When Nicodemus comes and wants to know, 
Hey, how do you have this eternal life? How, how do you become a child of God? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 3, John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time and do his mother's womb and be born? Can he? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is a spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. He goes on down to verse 14. And as Moses was lifted up as a serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. And in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How do you become a child of God? How do you become the offspring of Jesus? How do you become a part of this ever-growing family of the Son of God? You are born again. Not of flesh, but of spirit. You are born again. You believe in the Son. You accept Him. You become a child of God. And the promised reward for this one is that because He was willing to suffer, He shall see His ever-growing offspring. Why is there rejoicing in heaven when a lost man gets saved? Why is there rejoicing in heaven? Everybody say, well, the angels of God, they're up there rejoicing. Do you know who's leading the charge? Jesus. For that is another one of his offspring. You daddies ever brag when y'all had a baby? Thought it looked like you and everybody prayed it didn't? i never forget our first child was born. I was the only one out there. Whenever that child was born, nobody in our family was out in Texas. They were on their way. Couldn't get out there before the baby was born. I didn't have anybody to talk to, but I pulled everybody in the side, every walking in the hallway. Hey, come here, just let me show you something. Let me show you. She said, that's, that's my baby right there. Isn't that thing pretty? Looks just like me. Man, he's beautiful. You know what? I, there, there was nobody in that hospital rejoicing more than I was because that was my offspring. Jesus leads the charge for every child of God who comes and believes he sees his offspring. Why? Because the only way is the fact that he died so that we could be his offspring. That's not all. And he prolongs his days. He prolongs his days. Once again, it's the resurrection. I mean, Jesus told them all, I'm going to go, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed. But three days later, <laughs> three days later, I don't know how they didn't get that part. Three days later, nobody's at the tomb. <laughs> three days later, I'm going to be resurrected. And everybody didn't know really what that was about. Matter of fact, some of his greatest disciples in John chapter 11, some of his greatest disciples, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus has died. And Martha and Mary are so upset with Jesus because he could have come and healed him before he died. They don't know that because he's dead doesn't mean Jesus can't heal him, amen? But Jesus takes that opportunity and he says to Martha, he says, your brother shall rise again. Mark said, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. He who is resurrected will never die. And when Jesus was resurrected, he prolonged his days. Do you know how long his days are prolonged? You know how long he's going to live? Forever and ever and ever. That's how long he's going to prolong those days. Because he died, he was resurrected, and he is eternal life. And he gives eternal life, eternal life to everyone who believes in him. Well, that's not all it says back there in Isaiah. He will prolong his days and on. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Two things about the good pleasure of the Lord. What is the good pleasure of the Lord? What is the thing that God set in motion? What was Jesus came to do? Jesus, when he came here, he told you he had one primary thing to do. Remember what it was? To build his church. (laughs) He came to build his church. I will build upon this rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And the thing that is pleasing to the Lord God and the pleasure of the Lord God is is his church. And it says something about that. It says that the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Do you know where the church is today? The church is in the hand of the Lord God. The church is in the hand of the Lord God. Let me tell you something about the church. The church is prospering today. Prospering today. Oh, I'm not talking about financial prosperity. I'm not talking about material things. All that's going to be going away. You know what the prosperity of the church is? Is that people are still being one to Jesus. Amen. The church is still reaching people for Christ. Sometimes in America, it looks like we're just kind of paddling along and not doing much. But I'm going to tell you, all around this world, people are coming to know Jesus Christ, and the church is growing, and it's prospering in his hand. I just want that prosperity to touch us a little bit. Amen? And therefore, that which is the pleasure of God is prospering in the hand of Jesus. The church is what the church is, and the church can be what the church can be because we're in the hands of the Lord God. But not only that, It says that the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And it takes us to Philippians chapter 2. Remember what it said about Jesus there? Well, I know all of you probably could quote this. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. It tells us before that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Listen a minute. Hold on a second. He said what? It says he became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. What does that mean? That he was willing to be the sin and the guilt offering. Amen? Now listen to what the next verse says. Do not miss that. You know this verse, but you need to emphasize the first word. Therefore. That's the first word. What's it there for? Because he was willing to die. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that to the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He gave him a name above all names. 
that everybody's going to bow down. For see, the good pleasure of the Lord prospers in his hand. Whew. I'm tired already. Y'all tired? But there's a fourth reward. If he is willing to have the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. He will see it and be satisfied. If y'all were here with us, we went through the year of the revelation. We took verse by verse through that revelation. We talked about the Lamb of God who's sitting on the throne. And I'm telling you, it pictures over and over and over again that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the world, the anointed servant who died and paid the price for our sin, will die no more. But rather, he ascended to the Father. He's sitting on his throne. And he's observing all things. And as he observes all those things according to his plan and his purpose and his will, when he sees that, he sees it all and he is satisfied. He is satisfied. I don't know, I don't know a better word in the English language than satisfied. If you're eating all that you need, you're satisfied. If you Got all the rest you can handle, you're satisfied. If you got, you just, it's just the sweetest word. And when he sees it, he's satisfied. In other words, he, he doesn't just say that we're worth it. As he sits on the throne, he says, it's worth it. It's worth it. <laughs> it's worth being crushed. It's worth being a sin offering. It's worth carrying their weight. It's worth it. Because when I see what all the Son of God says he sees, he knows, well done. Well done. My beloved Son, sit on the throne, look and see. And be satisfied. I don't know about you. We can't thank him enough. Amen. He deserves every reward. Every reward. Every word of glory. Every word of praise. He deserves it all. Because he was willing to be crushed for you. Crushed for you. To take away your sin. To take away your guilt. To adopt you into his family. To become a child of God. To hold you in the palm of his hand. To care about everything about your life. To be intimately involved. He is worthy. If you haven't ever given your heart to Jesus, you ought to. And I promise you, if you'll do a simple thing and open your heart up to Jesus. Say, I want you to come in my heart. I don't understand it. I don't know. It's okay. We don't know either. We just believe it. Amen. We don't understand. You don't have to know everything. You just say, I believe you're the son of God who died on the cross. And I ask you to to forgive me as I put my faith and trust in you. I promise you, my friend, there'll be a birth experience and a change in your life that you cannot comprehend until you say, I believe. If you've never done that, today's the day to do it. Child of God, if you've done it, man, you ought to be thanking God over and over again. You ought to humble yourself 
wherever you can, and you ought to thank God for what Jesus has done for you, for what he's done for me. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for truth. Thank you for your word. I appreciate so much that song, Lord, that, that Kevin him sang. I couldn't have picked out a better song that they sung, The Hurt and the Healer. It says, I'm alive even though a part of me has died. You take my heart and breathe it back to life. Wow. I fall into your arms open wide when the hurt and the healer collide. Father, may this morning be a time when a hurting person meets the healer. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.